you know, when people saw UFOs in the 50s, they had this very specific look to them. And as we've modernized as a society, our perception of these crafts have modernized in reflection to what we're feeling, in reflection of what our perception is. So I think about that entity I saw all those years ago, and now the first time I saw it, it was next to me in bed. And I think about how much of my life journey and struggles with sex addiction attach themselves to beds, right? And just these these are the places you are. This is where you should feel safe and come to rest. And I think, yeah, I think it is the same entity. And I think it's formed itself into a level of maturity that I could recognize and understand. And I am a very tactile person, so I need to see and feel and touch. And I think it adapted itself to that. And it was exactly what I needed it to be until it didn't have to anymore. I'm Jim Perry, and this is Euphemet a show about the unknown and our relationship to it. This time, the entity in inky black and the bed we made. Next on Euphemet. It's when the blue southern sky loses itself to a fiery California oblivion finally consumed by darkness to reveal neon light and shadow. Late nights and wet lips hold us together until the end of it. The end of us. Daybreak. Or until she appears again in black to remind you. To remind you who you are. Zeeshan is a filmmaker, a musician, and has always seen into the shadows just a little differently. Like bending light to create film, these images flicker against hard walls, wrinkled sheets, and above bedposts. It's here she appears. It's here she warns of. But it's nothing new. She started to come around long, long ago. It started off on the warm concrete of Orange County, California. Son to an immigrant father and an overworked mother, Zeeshan felt darkness. He felt alone. I, I have this ingrained memory in my head. Um, we, we were really poor growing up, and we were in these kind of, you know, run-down apartments, and I would play with all the kids in the neighborhood, and, and I mean... These were like, these kids were like tough, dude. I mean, they were like 
they would fight all the time and they were like sadistic. And I remember feeling even then like really overwhelmed, right? And I remember this kid uh, pulled the, the legs off of a spider and, and it's, it just affected me so deeply. I felt so horrible. And it was the first time that I remember going home and trying to find the smallest space that I could and I crawled into it. I think I was in like the back corner of the closet behind some boxes and I just felt I like I needed to be insulated after that. And looking back on it, it's so strange because I must have had a lot going on emotionally at such a young age to feel that way because I don't know, it's it's something all these years later that I think about constantly, but I think it's because I was born into this marriage that had already been so high strung and stressed and anxious and hurtful and painful and I I feel like I took on a lot of that and it kind of imbued itself um, into me in a lot of ways. My relationship with my parents I think is very much tied to my definition of them. And when I think traditionally of what a father should be, um, I don't immediately think of who my father is, you know, as far as roles and what we should expect those people to do for us. Both of my parents are, are immigrants and came to this country, you know, in their teens or early 20s. I think my dad was in his early 20s. I mean, they came over here with nothing. I mean, a classic American immigrant story and really worked their asses off and learned the language and did everything that they could to create a foothold for themselves. But what I think they didn't have the time to work on was this kind of generational trauma that I came to learn about You know, my father had siblings and his dad had a few wives. They're they're from Pakistan and, you know, he had a really rough go of it. I mean, he told me stories about, you know, the torture that was inflicted upon him. And part of the reason why he came to America was because he felt like he could hit the reset button and redefine himself and kind of erase all of the the pain and and hurt that caused him to, I think, turn into the person that he eventually turned into. So they had already been through a lot, and I think that they were both kind of tuning forks for one another. And when they met, it was this perfect resonance of chaos, I guess. I, I think that they really saw pain in one another and recognized that there was a lot of hurt there. And I think they met with great intentions, you know, to give their kids what they didn't have before. Um, my mom, before she met my my dad, had been married before and had two kids of her own um, independently, you know, with her first husband. And that marriage didn't work out. And, you know, he took off to start a new life and left my half-brother and half-sister alone with my mom. And it was then that, you know, my mom met my dad. So before I was even in the picture, 
you know, they were dealing with these variables and dynamics that neither of them were probably prepared for. When my parents would get into their arguments, it was never a screaming, I don't want to say never, it it typically wasn't a screaming, shouting violence. It was a sense of just this imposing dread. I mean, I remember getting home from school and walking into our apartment and feeling like the air was just thick. You know, I was walking into this atmosphere and my parents would be not talking to one another, but still very aware of one another, almost like two predators making sure that the other one wasn't going to attack first or sometimes, you know, one would be incredibly vulnerable and the other person would just be sharp and aggressive. It was after those fights that I would start to feel this presence. Felt like something was looking at me, specifically looking at me and, you know, actively following me across the room and the first memory I have of it is is walking into, I shared a room with my older sister at the time and she was, you know, doing whatever older sisters do and out with her friends. And I walked into this room and I, I remember seeing this black mass in my bed. It felt like it was breathing. I felt like I could hear it. I didn't feel like I walked into a room and I had interrupted something. I felt like it had been there and it was waiting for me and it was in my bed and that's where I should be too. So that was the first time it really, I think, made itself known to me. And then over the years, it would become more tactile. You know, I would I would be able to make out pieces of it more or get a, a better glimpse at it or I would feel a specific type of recognition in it. It became less of a formless void and more of a, I think, a representation of certain things to me in my head that I found just objectively really fucking terrifying. I didn't start to feel scared until much later in my life. Um, I think when I was young, looking back, I had this, I had this sensitivity and this innocence that I felt seen, right? I felt like, oh, this is, this is for me. It feels for me. It's here for me. And it's looking at me. And that's not a feeling I really felt elsewhere. Later on in my life, when I was incredibly suppressive of my own emotions and didn't want to deal with acknowledging certain traumas and certain pain that I had been carrying around is when it did scare me. I remember after a particularly rough night I had, I 
got home at, I don't know, two in the morning or something and just collapsed in bed. And a few hours later, I felt like something was kind of shaking me awake and not in like a aggressive way, but just in that kind of way where if you spend all day in the ocean and then you come home, you still feel like you're in the waves a little bit. I felt this kind of momentum or my inner ear frequency was off or something. And I remember looking down towards the bottom of the bed at my feet and I recognized the black mass, but it was much more formed. And yeah, it scared the absolute hell out of me. I felt for the first time threatened by this entity that I kind of had recognized for most of my life. And it almost felt like, oh shit, here's something else I let down in my life, or here's something else that I thought was here for me and and isn't. Fifth grade was definitely the year that I think changed the trajectory of my life, which is so strange to say because I, I mean, I have nieces and nephews now and they're, they're just beautiful, incredible children. And I see who they are and how they are at their age. And I think, wow, I, I just didn't have that experience. Like I didn't have really a traditional childhood at all. I mean, as I mentioned, you know, for as long as I can remember, my parents were at one another's throats and my my father was not at all kind to my half-brother and my half-sister. And that has been the case for as long as, as they had a relationship or any type of pseudo-relationship. But in fifth grade, it was probably the final straw for my mom. And I think she felt that I was old enough to separate herself from my father. I had enough autonomy or independence to to be on my own. And, and she finally divorced him. I think the trigger was that he threatened to steal me and take me to Pakistan and never bring me back. Yeah, I carried around this this thing on my shoulders that, you know, my half-brother and sister maybe felt like they didn't deserve the fight that my mom was putting up for me. I don't know, that's a lot, you know. It's, it's a lot for me to feel now. But it was then that I finally got my own perspective on the world because I was totally by myself. I mean, my mom would go to work and you know, work her ass off to maintain a, an apartment for us that she could afford on her own. And I, I didn't have a relationship with my father at the time. Every feeling that I had, it was like the only feeling that mattered at the moment. If I was mad, I was the maddest kid on earth. If I was sad, I was the saddest kid on earth. If I was, you know, anything, it's just you, you feel it times a million when you're by yourself. And those years definitely hardened me in a way that would prepare me for my life later on down the road. There's no doubt that a lot of that contributes itself to like my success in my career field or the fact that I can wrangle a cast and crew and put together a production or that, 
you know, I can write music and manage that process. And I mean, there's a lot of good things I like to tell myself that came out of that because I feel like if I don't, then it's easy for me to sit here and think like, what the fuck was it all for? I grew up around a bunch of kids just like me, right? Angsty, um, upset, traumatized, frustrated. And most of them were drinking and doing drugs, I mean, at a pretty young age. And that never, that never appealed to me. It just was something that I think I wanted to be in control. So to give control to something else that would potentially get me in trouble or destabilize me or if I get arrested I have to call my parents I don't know their cell phone numbers I don't know where they are I don't know where to find them I can't risk going out and getting wasted when I'm a young kid I didn't feel that way when I was with girls it was like somebody flipped a switch in my head and it felt like I had been taking care of myself since I was in fifth grade, and now I am, you know, sexually active in eighth grade, and I just, I felt like an adult, you know? I, I felt like I was independent and I was making my own decisions and I felt like I was in control. I think it immediately, to me, was something that just made me feel cared for. You know, I had an addiction that started at a really young age that I didn't recognize was an addiction until, you know, so many years later. As I got older and my relationship with my family continued to deteriorate, I remember just feeling so cynical and like just totally shut off to the world. I remember the first time, you know, somebody asked me, you know, like, what is going on with you? And I remember I wanted to answer her so badly, but it felt like I was, I don't know, like swallowing glass. You know, I had this big knot in the back of my throat and I felt like something was just pushing down those feelings. There was this particularly hard night and I spent some time with a woman who I was brutally honest with. And I said, listen, like, I'll never be your boyfriend. I'll never be the person you're looking for. And it's not because of anything that she did. It was because I didn't feel, I felt like I would let anybody down in a relationship. I felt like I wasn't worth the risk or the time or the investment. I didn't feel like I was worth uh, the love, you know? So I kept her at arm's length and and she said I don't care you know she said I know I'll never get what I want with you and all that matters is what I can have with you right now and I remember coming home from her place and I felt horrible I mean just I didn't feel like I was worth anything you know and I think it really hit me that night and that was the night that I woke up and you know this entity was at the edge of my bed mm-hmm. 
and it was the first night I felt scared when I saw her. I think that kicked off this ongoing kind of ritual between her and I. And any time I was probably making a decision that I shouldn't have been making, uh, I, I would see her. I've always been afraid of the vision of, of what would be described as a traditional crone. Kind of bent over, loose skin, long white hair, just dirty. What I imagine reading in, in books about children who stumble into the forest and, you know, are going to get eaten or thrown into an oven or whatever it may be. And that's what she looked like to me. There was never detail, right? I could never could never see really what her outfit was. I could just make out this silhouette or definitely her hair and her eyes didn't have a color but were almost reflective. She had cataracts or something. I remember walking out of the bedroom in this woman's apartment and going to her bathroom and I caught a glimpse of her in the kitchen, you know, and she was just standing in the corner and I walked right by her and I went to the bathroom and I said, you know, it's time for me to go. Another night I came home to my place and I, you know, closed the door behind me and I saw her hanging on the back of the door. She would be in intersections and in my rearview mirror and in people's lawns and in my garage and just everywhere. I felt scared that one night, but after that, it's almost like she was my compass and not in the direction that I should be going, but the opposite. And I kind of built this rapport with her that I would, I would talk to her and I would say, yeah, I know, right? Like, I, yeah, you're right. I, I shouldn't. And I still would. Or there's other nights that she would win, right? And I would say, yeah, you're right, I shouldn't. And I would turn around and go home. Or I wouldn't pick up the phone or I wouldn't respond to the texts or whatever it may be. But I felt her a lot more for those years. And I would wake up and I would see her in impossible positions, you know, the her hand would be coming out under my mattress or, you know, her hair would be hanging from my ceiling. And it was never for a, more than a split second, right? It was just, just a flash. Um, but it always felt like clarity. I was dating somebody that I should not have been dating from the perspective of her lifestyle and the people that she surrounded herself with and how volatile she was. And I mean, it was just a overall a very unhealthy, toxic situation for me to involve myself in. 
one day I'm, I'm with her and I'm at her place and uh, long story short, you know, a bunch of guys come in her house and they're looking for something and uh, they think that I'm involved in hiding what it is and uh, all of them have guns and they're all very adamant about using them and uh, I end up sitting in the back of a pickup truck not knowing if I'm going to be taken anywhere or if I am going to be able to see morning. And I did. And I was able to get out of that situation and I remember driving home in this just complete state of numbness and shock. I was so worried about her, but she seemed totally unfazed by the whole thing. And I feel like that's, I don't know, maybe it's something that's happened to her before and she's desensitized to it or, you know, was hiding that trauma so she can be strong. But I remember just feeling like, fuck, man, this is, that could have been it for me. And what was the worst feeling was that I, I don't know, it's not like I was, worried that much about not being there the next day. Yeah, I drove that night to one of my, uh, kind of discovered this spot and, uh, next to the beach where if you walk out onto the rocks at the right time, you could find yourself completely surrounded by the ocean. I had gone there dozens of times and always in the middle of the night and there was never really anyone out there at all. And if they were, it's like there was this mutual respect of don't talk to me or these are my rocks right now. And there's no questions asked. And I really loved that unspoken connection. And I think it's a running theme in in how I interact with folks even today. So I'm sitting on these rocks and I'm hearing this kind of ocean come in and, and overtake, I don't know, everything, you know? Um, and I feel her next to me. This is the first time I felt her in my presence, but she wasn't looking at me. She was also looking out into the ocean. And I felt like she was also in this moment with me. And I had this overwhelming sense that I needed to just accept what my life had been up to that point. And I'd spent so much time pushing it away and acting like it wasn't real or acting like I was too tough for it to bother me or that people have gone through much worse than I have, right? I mean, horrible, horrible things. Like, who the fuck am I to even complain? Or, you know, maybe my siblings were right for hating me for so many years because I've caused a lot of pain, you know, just my existence. I mean, my mom stayed in this marriage for so many years because she thought that it was what was best for me until she couldn't. And 
I remember just cr crying. I mean, crying so hard that I hurt, you know, every part of me hurt. It felt like, I don't know, like I, I felt like I was just purging so much pain and I don't know where it came from because I don't feel like it stopped for a long time. And I just kind of laid my head down on the rocks, you know, kind of almost in her lap. And I felt like I was melting into her. You know, I felt like I was in a state of transition, like I was changing form or changing shape. And I remember sitting up and when I did, it was almost in complete unison. The, the tide changed and the water went away and, and it felt like as soon as I sat up, I had this clear path back to land. And I got up and I walked across the rocks and I looked back um, and she wasn't there anymore. I no longer had that feeling in my throat of swallowing glass. I didn't feel like I had something pushing down on my throat when people would ask me what was wrong or what was going on with me. I finally felt like I could say I'm in a lot of pain and I need help and I hope you can be patient with me and I hope that the more you learn about me, the more you'll love me. When before I think it was, there's no way you can love me if you've heard where I come from or how I feel or what I've done. I feel fortunate that I had something to help me. I think the reason why I saw that was not only because it was the scariest thing to me growing up, you know, even now I watch movies and if you throw like a spooky witch on the screen, like I'm, I'm going to get fucking scared 100% of the time. You know, it, it's, it's just ingrained into my DNA. I'm sure as like a caveman or something, I witnessed like something <laughs> unexplainable that has like tainted my DNA for, for eons. But I, I, the other part of me, I think is the fact that I fucking, I loved my grandma. You know, she, she was the person that made me food when my dad wasn't around and was always like so just kind, objectively kind to me. I think about how my grandma sat in bed next to me and how the first time I saw it, it was next to me in bed. I don't know, she just, she was there always for me. We, we never spoke the same language, so I had this just meditative feeling around her all the time where I just she knew what I needed and how to take care of me and I think part of her maybe is there in this entity that I see and 
part of her is probably about what I see when I see her. But I think that's what makes the paranormal and our experiences with the paranormal so special. I mean, it's just a, an alteration of, of who we are. And I think that these experiences come along and they guide us for as long as they need to. There's one thing you can be sure about, and that's that they'll come back if you need them to. And I feel a ton of safety and security knowing that I haven't seen her because that makes me feel like I am making the right decisions. And if she shows up, I will be grateful that I have someone to look out for me. Thank you for listening to this edition of Euphemet. This feature was edited and scored by John McEdward. Thank you to Zeeshan for his story. Zeeshan is a listener of Euphemet, and you can have your story featured too. Reach out to me at jim at euphemet.com. For everything Euphemet, including how you can subscribe to the show, links to our Patreon and social media, visit euphemet.com. And for even more, check out Night Drift our weekly radio broadcast discussing Euphemet and hosting panels on topics at the intersection of society and strange. Sundays at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. This has been Euphemet, and I'm Jim Perry. Until next time, keep looking up.